Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, a woman's way to freedom, power, love, and magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Episode 13, How to Heal a Poet's Heart, or The Invention of the Harp. Our guest is Maureen Buscarino. She's a harper, a music educator, a podcaster, and the founder of Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions. Maureen received her master's degree in ethnomusicology from Ireland's University of Limerick. Passionate about bringing music to schools and to the community, Maureen also received a master's in music education from Columbia University. You can hear more from Maureen on her three podcasts, Harp Song, Beat Your Heart Out, and Theater Aesthetics. Before I tell you today's story, a story of a nearly forgotten heroine who would have been a legend in her own time, I want to tell you about a new offering of mine that I think you'll love. As a not-work listener, you know me as a storyteller. You probably have a good idea of why I call myself a word witch, too. In addition to crafting and sharing stories from the past, I also help folks uncover and heal their own stories. This work helps you to be more fully present in the now and to create a more beautiful, connected future. I call this work story healing, and the new offering of one-to-one sessions is called Healing for Heroines. It's a unique blend of energy medicine, intuitive guidance, and the language of archetypes and mythology to help you work through the tangles of life so you can weave a new story, so you can weave a heroine's knot. Healing for Heroines isn't just for women. It's for non-binary folks and for anyone who wants to connect to the deep feminine wisdom within. Being a heroine is not just about being a hero in a dress. It's about deepening relationships, building community, and finding strength by asking for support. Learn more about Healing for Heroines over on my website, marisagowdy.com. I am so happy to have Maureen Buscarino with me here today. She has played such a vital role in the Knotwork Storytelling Podcast in that she played at the launch event that we had back in February of 2022, just last month, and brought her amazing skills to support the story that we are going to share with you today. And you'll be hearing her playing along with the story, just as if you were with us live at the Studio 89 Gallery in Highland, New York, when we performed last month. So... As is our way, we're going to allow the story to speak for itself, and then we will enter into a conversation together about why the story still matters and to get some really beautiful and important insights into the harp and its history in Ireland, because Maureen is an absolute wealth of knowledge when we get comes to that. So let's start here. Fado, Fado, Eneron. There once was a poet of great skill and fame. Ireland, of course, is a country known for its poets, its fila. And Ireland was known for its bonfila, too. The story I shall tell you is of Conaclumor. Conaclumor was a bonfila. Conaclumor was a woman, a poet, and a person of great skill and great renown. Bonfila means poet in Irish. Clumor means of great fame. 
Now, her story has been folded into a couple of dozen lines. Her story has left much room for interpretation. And, yes, misinterpretation, too. If your passions tend toward the mythic, the Celtic, and the obscure, you might have read that Cana Clumor was an Irish goddess of poetry and inspiration. You might have come across a website or two that names her as the inventor of the harp. In the great modern quest for goddesses and our deep desire to resuscitate ancient magic, someone, not so very long ago, spun a tale of a harp-making goddess by editing the very last line of a brief passage we find in a medieval Irish book called Imic na Troav, or The Proceedings of the Great Bardic Institution. That modern twist on the story endures, across the internet at least. If you go to the Oracle, and by that of course I mean Google, and ask about Conachlumor, you'll hear that she's a deity. You'll be told to call her Canola. You'll see her credited with the creation of Ireland's most powerful symbol and most beautiful instrument. Now, while it's a nice enough idea, I wonder if the real tale is actually even richer and more full of possibility, even more because it's true. Well, true in the sense that some monks from County Cork wrote it down in their Book of Lismore in the 14th century. It's up to you if you want to believe what those medieval lads inscribed on vellum or you feel more comfortable with what you find on Wikipedia. In my story, I will rob this mythic woman of none of her power, even as I strip her of her divine status and place the harp maker's tools in the hands of another. We'll land at a different place, a place that feels a bit more human and a bit more like what we might need right now. So come, wander with me. We'll rely on the solid enough ground of the manuscript when we can, and we'll ask the graces of history and inspiration to carry us when we soar through into the thinner air of what might be. This, after all, is the realm of the storyteller. Conda Clumor would not have been born a Bonfila. Sure, she would have been born with the love of verse. She would have been born with a gift for a clever turn of phrase. As soon as she could speak, folk would have noticed the music of her speech, and everyone would have remarked on the uncanny magic of her memory when she was still just a wee girl. As a member of the Phila class, the elite poets, Conna Clumor would have committed nearly 200 great tales to memory. These were the stories that took a whole night to tell. Stories of heroes, invasions, fairy women, romantic trysts, broken hearts, and battle rages. She would likely have been known as a seer as well. She might have carried the gift of prophecy and vision far surpassing that of the royals and even the druid priests of the time. She would have studied for 12 years to earn her place amongst the Fila. She would have proven herself at school, places where it was the skill of the poet, not the body beneath the robes that mattered. How was it then that a woman of such special ability would end up married in that day and age? How is it she would be married, as the ancient book says, to a man she hated? Let's take a flight of fancy together, but root it in what we know of human nature. Even in the golden ages of poets, we can assume that certain kinds of fathers were certain kinds of fathers, and men made deals with one another on behalf of themselves or their unwitting offspring. Marriages were the stuff of statecraft and border security. We do not know Conachlumor's father's name, 
Apparently, he was much less memorable than his impressive daughter. Perhaps he was a foolish man who had no ear for poetry. Perhaps he was a greedy man who valued access to better grazing land more than he valued his daughter's unique gifts. Perhaps he was a jealous man who coveted her ability to weave the tales of commoners and kings and hold an audience in thrall. Did she foresee her marriage to a man named Makul? Maybe she looked into the fires or read the patterns of the cranes in flight and saw that a man named Midwell would ride in on his chariot in search of a bride for his son. Marriage was a nuanced institution in early Ireland. The Breton laws, those ancient laws unique to that tiny island, had much to say about most layers of society. There were at least nine different kinds of marriage that might have ruled Connachlumor and Macul's union. We can guess she was a prize, and a bride price was paid, but her world would have recognized the marriage even if she had been abducted or run off with Macul in a fit of passion or rebellion. Yes, we can only speculate on the nature of their relationship. We can only judge it by its ruins and its potential resurrection. Imagine Connachlumor slipping from her shared bed before first light, casting a cold look over her shoulder as she stepped across the threshold into a chilly April morning, not long before the fertility festival of Bialtina. She had no desire to greet the time of blossoms and beginning with that man of hers. To leave in such a way, with no excuse that the law or their families would recognize, was a grievous decision. There were plenty of reasons she could walk out under the light of the noonday sun and declare their union null and void. If he had taken up with another woman, if he refused to support her, if he had tricked her into the marriage through sorcery. And those are just a few examples. But McCool was guilty of none of that. They had not been together long enough for her to prove he was incapable of offering her a babe. And she had no proof that he had taken a male lover. He was not fat, and she did not know him to brag about their intimate lives. All of these potential reasons for divorce are included in the laws. We know that McCool was innocent of all these sins because she left in secret. We can imagine she left carrying only a small satchel with a bit of bread and cheese and a skin of water. She left on foot, striding westward to the place where the hills were empty and the distant shores were wild. As Connachlumore strode away from her marital home, she felt herself coming back to herself. With each step, she recovered a wildness that she knew at her core, but that she had always denied. What does a child prodigy know of wildness, after all? What do they allow in the school of poets when there are so many lines to learn, such exacting rhymes and meters to emulate? What would have happened to her emerging wildness when she was contracted to be married and her career disrupted without so much as a by your leave? It's important to note that she was leaving more than just her husband when she set out alone on that damp dawn. She was leaving her profession and abandoning those who would await her stories at the festival fires. She was leaving her sacred storyteller's place by the royal hearth she wasn't just disappointing a spouse. She was disappointing a king and a kingdom. She walked faster. There was an unseen force that pulled her westward toward the infinite ocean she'd only seen a handful of times in her nearly three decades in this world. As she strode on, she could feel the softness of the grasses and the sharpness of the stones through her leather slippers in a way that made her come more fully alive. 
She felt the rose gold of dawn like a balm on her skin. She heard the birds chattering, and she understood their language in a new way. Walking day and night until she lost track of how long she'd been gone and how many suns set upon her hunger, she could finally smell and taste the sea. The morning was opening bright and blue over the deepest gray-greens of the ocean. Here, her soul unspooled, and she realized just how cruel a cage had been cast upon her by tutors, druids, her father, her husband, and even that sacred legion of words. She let the bonds of their rules and laws, the whole weight of civilization, fall away. It was carried by the Atlantic winds, and she began to feel unburdened. Perhaps, she thought, this is what it feels like to be free. She was weary, but her tourists, her journey, was nearly done. She did not know what life awaited her on the strand, but she knew that once she crossed the dunes and found herself where the sand was touched by the waves, she would be home. Only when she crested the final dune did she realize what had been calling her. It was not simply the natural music of the sea, all rhythm and no melody. No, it was an actual song that came from a great sleeping monster just beyond the reach of the tide. Connaclumore had never seen a beast like it, but it did not move as she approached. She remembered her own tales of the women and the heroes who lived on the western islands beyond the horizon. She was finally seeing the leviathan she had described in her stories of the great voyagers. This whale had lain there a long time, its bones picked clean except for the sinews strung between the great animal's ribs. The wind picked up from the water, and the song began again. This was what had called her across the dunes and perhaps across the entire country and more. This song was the wildness that she had yearned for, the wordless truth that she knew to be hers in her own heart's core, but had never claimed as her own until that moment by the shore. This was when she realized she had not slept. In all the days and nights she'd been wandering, she'd never laid down her head. And when she thought back to all those nights beside McCool, when she had been forced to listen to the cacophony of his oblivious breath, she realized she could not recall the last time she had surrendered herself to the wilds of dream. Connaclumore lay herself down. And she slept. She slept like a child before she had filled her head with generation upon generation of bardic tales. She slept like a wild thing who was not held by the container of schools and the endless swirl of student life. She slept like a maiden who had not been sold off to suit her father's ambitions. She slept like a creature, held by the embrace of the earth, finally safe in the sheltering song of this peaceful giant of the sea. Connaclumore slept. She slept like a woman who was finally, blissfully, alone. She did not realize, though, that she had been followed. For all the days and nights she had wandered, drawn ever onward by some invisible pull, by the rewilding urge within her, there was another who was pulled by a force that was just as strong. McCool pursued her. He was not driven by malice, by jealousy, or the rage of betrayal. He was driven by love. 
From the first moment he'd clapped eyes on Connachlumor, he had been besotted. Though not a man of particular intellect, he was no fool. It's just that he was struck dumb in the presence of his brilliant betrothed. He could barely string one sentence along to the next when he sat beside her at the banquet table. It was enough for him to gaze on her hair as dark as the raven's wing, her cheek as white as snow, her lips as crimson as drops of lifeblood. His wife had thought him an Egypt at first. Then she thought him a jailer, just another man who would bid her behave to fit his plan. She scowled at his gentle way with the cows, his sure hands as he refashioned a new bridle for her horse, and the way he spoke so kindly to all, from the dairymaids to the children to the elders who sat by their doorways, deaf and blind to the world. Connachlumor was a brilliant woman, but she had never been allowed the tenderness that was part of McCool's very nature. It was there in her stories. In the tears of the young widow, in the kindness of the mother sending her son to battle, in the passion between lovers who'd been kept apart by a taciturn chieftain. But kindness hadn't a place in her own life story. Her mother had no voice by her father's hearth. Connachlumor had seen her brothers beaten for showing mercy. She herself had been heard to say that she believed womanish ways were a weakness in a man, and perhaps in a woman, too. Certainly, her father would scoff if he realized she'd been married to such a weakling as the kindly McCool. But that father of hers was too busy counting the size of his new herds to spare a thought for his famous, clever daughter, now that he was no longer responsible for her upkeep. And though she hated herself for allying herself with her father's narrow, wicked views, she was shaped by them so perfectly, she could not imagine a world in which she remade herself. She had poems to recite, crowds to please. She had a husband who had to be endured. Well, all of this was true until the day she stood up and left it all behind. Kana was unchangeable, and the world was unchanged until the song inside of her, the song passed down by generations of poets who had an entire country's history and culture in their compositions, dissolved into one woman's internal scream. She suddenly knew she could endure the weight of those expectations no more. She could no longer stay vigilant and asleep at the same time. She could not stand to be an exile from her own dreams in this narrow, wicked world of prescribed songs and predetermined roles and all the same old places. If she had not been so wrapped up in the stories of the ancients and the expectations of the crowd, she might have realized that McCool was not a stupid man. She might have spied the spark that lit the eyes that danced above his silent lips. She might have known he was a keen observer and a witness to her pain as well as a man who saw her strength and smarts. McCool realized that his wife was exhausted in ways that even she could not see, despite all her cleverness and ability to play the poet's game. He realized that she needed this sleep like a lamb needs its mother. He watched her lie down to rest and his heart burst open. Silently, he wept as he watched her sleep. He too was entranced by the song of the winds and the whalebones. Clever in his own way, he could see the way the air strummed the sinews. He gently knocked on the great bones and realized they sounded hollow. Unlike his wife, 
he was not moved to sleep. He was moved to innovation. He stroked his wife's brow, his heart at once opening and breaking to realize this was the only time he had touched her and not felt her cringe from his caress. Then he let his fingers play on those dried bits of whale guts, nature's strings, before leaving the woman and the divine instrument to their lullabies. McCool made his way back over the dunes and deep inland. He walked so far that he knew he was only dreaming the song of the sea. He walked until he reached an ancient wood. There he found a fallen willow tree and pulled the hatchet from his belt. It's impossible to know how much time passed as he hollowed out the trunk to create the sound box, fashioned a sturdy pillar to support it, and found a gently curving limb to top this new creation. Lovingly, he sanded the wood and joined it with invisible seams. He carved knots of his own design into the curved top and the long angles of its sides. He pulled rough cloths and fine cloths from his satchel and worked that wood until it shone with the life of its original living magic. Pleased with his work, he slung his creation over his arm and surveyed back to where his wife lay. Though he had worked the entire day through and the sun was near to setting, she lay there sleeping still. The song played on, the melody filling the air as the shadows of the ever-sleeping whale stretched long upon the sand. The McCool was terrified he might wake her and was even more terrified still at what she might say or do when she saw him. He pulled out his clever knife and began to cut away the strings that stretched between the great whale bones. He sang to himself, making a pretty job of echoing those fair tones. As he cut away each string, however, it was less the ethereal music of the other world and more the intimate hum of a lover. And this was the foreign sound that Conaclumor did not and could not know. She had never let herself hear it before. Her husband's song pulled her from her well-deserved dreams, and she sat up with a start, her harsh words ready. The Philo weren't just able to inspire with their verses. They could also craft what was called a satire, a vivid curse that could raise boils on the skin. She would take down this criminal with a satire that would make him pay for killing what she now loved best, the song that finally gave voice to her wildness and offered her true peace. McCool was loosening the whale's final string when he heard his wife's hissed curses. He would gladly take the wound, for he was not a vain man, but he realized her words were pointing not at his fair cheeks, but at his strong and capable hands. No, he screeched like a child afraid of his father's fist. I've come to you with a gift, McCree. The blisters began to appear upon his fine, strong fingers, even though those hands were well calloused with honest work and inspired craft. On and on spun her harsh words, the angry words she had stored inside her too tamed heart, ripped out with the wildness of her need. McCool's blood began to drip upon the wood, even as he frantically strung each whale-gut strand into its new frame he'd made. Muscle exposed, he could hear the tap of his own finger bones against the wood as he tied the final sinew to the instrument he had made. He did not have the words to stop her, 
but with his last strength, he ran his fingers along the strings. The song of the sea, the whale's great gift, wafted from the new object fashioned by McCool's clever, loving hands. It was even sweeter than the song played by the wind. Conaclumore was finally silent. She stared at her husband, at his bloodied hands, at the thing of beauty that he clutched to him, at the tears that washed the blood from the strings. For the first time in her own memory, she wept too. She felt that wildness that had come over her, crest like a wave. This time, it did not wash away, and it did not wash her away. Instead, it swept her up and she felt a rush like never before. She was carried to McCool, this man she had dismissed and despised. She was carried through the wilderness and back again to a new place inside herself. There is much talk of how a poet could wound with her words, and less talk of whether they could use their words to heal. I like to think she could that Conaclumore could wrap syllables and phrases around her husband's wounded hands and make McCool's fingers whole again. I like to think that she was made whole in the process. I like to imagine them walking back from the strand, the harp slung over his shoulder, the song of the sea, Namara, in her heart. I like to imagine they had the great whale's blessing. I like to think this is a worthy beginning of the Klarshach, the harp which would become something truly mythical and magical in the hands of both gods and harpers for millennia. The presence of the harp would deepen and transform the art of the poets, the Fila, the storytellers, the Shanachi, and it would birth the bards. This harp would become the symbol of Ireland's identity across the centuries as the country stood and fell, stood and fell, and stood again against the invaders who would insult this land for her wildness, even as they lusted after her wild spirit. But those invasions were a long time off on the day the harp was born. Let's imagine that Conaclumore and McCool lived happily, and most importantly, wildly ever after. Thank you. Thank you so much for sitting with me for the story, for adding your music to this story. You know, there's so many layers in here and you and I have spent some time with it at this point from various angles. And I feel like I get something different from it every time that I read it and tell it. I noticed your pen was moving as I was sharing it today. So I'm hoping we can explore the sense that this is about the invention of an instrument in which you have such expertise. This is the invention of the symbol of a country that you and I both love and have both studied in. It's also a love story. And that, 
I don't know. I need a love story right now in the world that feels so challenging. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, definitely. So when I was studying at the University of Limerick, I was lucky enough to study with Michal Sullivan, who is was just an amazing composer and professor. And he, he just loved music and Ireland, the land and poetry. And he always had stories. And really, when I was working with him on studying Shanos, like Irish traditional Irish singing, uh, we were talking about poetry and land and a poem called Filarish, meaning Return Again by Shono Reardon. And so the whole idea of that poem is he's asking people to come back to the Irish language and that your identity is from the land and the poetry comes from the land. So just like the music comes from the land, a tune could come from a bird song. And there's that whole idea of the inspiration from the land and from the poetry and inspiring the music and what the harpists would tell the story. Just, just like when the harp is accompanying story or song, how it can heighten the emotion behind it. And that international language that, you know, we can communicate with. Mm-hmm. I believe that there's the magic behind poetry and music yeah. and the land yeah. just, it all kind of just goes right in together. I love that you started us there. Thank you. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful way that how you you end the story too. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious how you came about finding this story or choosing this out of all the, the harp stories that you could have told. Right. Well, that was part of the conversation you and I had when we first met. Because of course, you and I are both women living in the Hudson Valley. We went, met at a women's business networking group. And both of us have these roots in Ireland. So this sense too of being called back to a place in which we never lived, but our soul was from. Like Once you find someone like that, we make these instant connections as you and I did. So once I knew about you and your work and knew I wanted a story for us for this podcast, and I went on a quest looking for stories. And I mean, so it's actually in my introduction when I talk about, you know, going to the great oracle to Google, I really can't throw that much shade on this because ultimately I did find this story through Googling led to a journal, led to a footnote. In my travels online, I came to a translation from the Ossianic Society from roughly, it was from the 18th century. I'll, I'll put the exact dates in the show notes. But in this longer story, it's actually a story about how the bards were total pains in the neck and they would like hang about and be such a nuisance because they kept demanding hospitality because that's such an important value in Celtic culture. But the entire proceedings from the Ossianic Society were about the harp itself. So I knew the story that we needed was going to be in here somewhere. And in this digging, I found this very brief mention of Conachlumor and I realized like that's what we're looking for. Because of course, many of the harp stories of Ireland come from the great war harps. They come from the Dagda, whose story I'll actually be telling later in the season. But a story for you and me felt like it wanted to have an intimacy to it. And it wanted, I wanted it to be a woman's story. And when I discovered Kana, and again, very brief mention, mentioned her husband's name, mentioned her husband's father's name, mentioned what she did, that she hated him that she took off and that she went all the way to the sea to 
where the, a great whale was lay, was laid dead and those sounds were coming through and that her husband found her. And essentially the story was that he was inspired to create the harp and he did. I added the elements about what his motivations were. I added the elements too about um, her cursing him and that sense of the, the flesh stripped from his bones, which I felt was okay in terms of poetic license in that I am curious about how words can heal as well as knowing that words can hurt. And that I really wanted this ultimately to be a story of reconciliation between a very human woman and a very human man who then obviously did leave this great legacy and that they worked together in this way because she was the poet and the source of inspiration. He was this creator of this instrument. And through this relationship, look what was born, this entirely new instrument, but also an entirely new symbol that would carry through in the stories and the songs that would be so enmeshed with the land. Hmm. And I just want to underline again the way that you really remind us how the instrument itself was born from nature. And that when we can remember that, that's the entire point of mythology not for the he said, she said, and the great dramas that can, you know, inspire our next epic movies or be a really great novel, but that sense of this was how people were upon the land and with the land and learned from the land and its creatures what was dead and what was living and what was born again, because that was what was truly most important and the, one of the greatest reasons why people told and shared and listened to stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sitting around the the fire and sharing stories and laughter and the harp would play behind the stories too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and accompany the singers. And the harpist was kind of like the right hand to the king. So right. musicians were, especially the harpists, were held with high regard and looked to for orations or, you know, like, hey, harpist, tell me that great story, that battle I won. And, you know, like, I could, you know, but, but also as an advisor to the king. Mm -hmm. Now, after Cromwell came, came through, you know, that's all bets were kind of off at that point. Um, The kings fled on the harpists, you know, some went into France or Italy and, but they didn't have a marketable skill other than being that annoying person asking for money or asking for a patron. So the Celtic revival in like the sixties, we really find harps coming back with the Breton harpist, Alan Stavell with Anne Heyman and so many other pioneers of the Celtic revival mm. going back into these books, going back into the bunting collection and finding these songs and then bringing them back to life. Some of the songs were preserved as fiddle tunes. Mm-hmm. Some were preserved as pipe tunes. Mm-hmm. So there's just such whole rediscovery of the music yeah. and the legends of the, the harpists. Right. It makes me so curious about the ways in which it's almost the sense of, I guess in a way I want to say the rise and fall, but that sense of if knowing that around Irish music and Irish storytelling, there was kind of an aristocracy, 
right? There was that sense of you've studied a long time, you've gone to the schools of the Druids and the Bards. Now you will go and be with the kings and you will go and sit at these courts and, you know, hold space at the great festivals. And that rose and rose and rose until it diminished so much that it was barely kept alive. And then I'm wondering if this is even at all correct, that idea of kind of a democratization of music must have happened afterward. I'm curious about how, you know, the Sean Noss singing is that unaccompanied singing in the Irish language. That must really have come up from the earth itself, as you said, without the necessarily high pedigree and tradition. And then knowing that so much of the late 19th, early 20th century was the Celtic revival in terms of mythology and literature. That was Yeats and Lady Gregory and Singh. And then thinking about how, as you're saying, it came up with the music in the 60s, which just seems like that other kind of flowering of the entire world and understanding music and folk songs coming in at the same time as rock and roll. It just makes me, there's connections I'm not able to make. I don't have the scholarship and depth of knowledge, but it really just helps me further understand the wealth of these traditions and the nuances. And yet there's this connecting line between all of them that get us here today to say, and let's tell a story from the 14th century and imagine how it all might have started, which is all they were doing at that point. You know, it doesn't sound like they knew where the first harp came from. They imagined the whale bones. Sure. And the Romans, you know, they never conquered Ireland, but they did encounter the Irish and found that they were, they, you know, thought they were barbaric, but they thought their music was incredible. And they knew that their musicians were so gifted and talented and just beyond this elegance and beauty of the music. Mm -hmm. And as you know, you know, learning Irish language, that when Cromwell came in, people weren't allowed to speak the language. They weren't allowed to play the music. They weren't allowed to dance. Right. And a lot of people couldn't afford an instrument. So you have this thing called mouth music, which was, but everyone has a, you know, you, most people have a decent singing voice. or So they would sing, sing the dances, or they would take bones hmm. from like sheep bones or whatever they could find to make the music. They would wow. make their own drums. They would make their own whatever they had. It, so if someone had a fiddle, that was a big, big deal. Harps were very, right. who could afford them? So only the aristocracy could. And at that point, everyone wanted to be European and everyone wanted to have these like fancy, beautiful harps. So, or the pianoforte really took over. So in the drawing rooms, mm -hmm. they were playing all this Vivaldi and also the Baroque music. And with the harp, without levers on it to change keys and things like that, it sort of, you know, Nancy Harrell wrote an excellent book on the modern Irish harp and how it's mm -hmm. sort of a, a combination of the ancient Irish harp and the concert harp that you see in orchestras. And so it's to give it that versatility mm -hmm. so it could play the popular music of the time right and dances and reels and jigs and things weren't really played on the harp back in the day but now harpists are you see that now but it wasn't really there mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. accompanying for dances it was there for praising the king for telling stories of joy and and lullabies and so the when you're talking about the lullabies and mm. things so, so there was a three musics 
and my Irish is horrible, so I'm not going to say it, but it was, you know, for celebration, for lullabies and for sorrow. So, and I just love like in the, in your story, when you talk about the music of her speech and just that whole idea of the poetry and the music going hand in hand is so integral and important. And that calls us back to where you had gone before, and I, I didn't pick the thread up, but I'm so glad to now. The sense that the Irish language is, of course, integral to every single piece of this. I mean, you know, the story, what it was originally written in the Middle Irish, it all, English was the conqueror's tongue. It was not there yet at this time. And so my own journey with Irish is still ongoing. I studied it in college. I've been studying it again with a amazing organization called the Trailblazery based in Ireland. And they run these global Irish language classes over about, I think it's eight weeks called, called Skolskerta. Kathy Scott and Monaghan McGon are both at the heart of it. And they are dedicated to keeping the Irish language not only alive, but thriving and looking at it as this you know, the, the, the mother tongue in so many ways, and that the heart of the language and the heart of the people are so intricately combined. And that it is, we also began our conversation talking about the land of Ireland itself, the land in what, from which these stories were born, and you and I being 3,000 miles away from that. And yet part of the tradition of keeping these stories, language, music, ideas, ways of being, alive. And that one of the things I most appreciate about Skolskerta is that there is this desire to both root the language and the stories in the land, but also recognize the global nature of the passion that weaves us back to a place that you know, I'm at the point now as we look at the world and what's happening, do I feel okay about jumping on that really cheap new airline that's out of Newburgh, New York and hopping over to Ireland for a long weekend? God, it's all I want to do. And if I truly care about the earth, is that what's the right thing to do right now? Is it okay to stay with the stories and keep studying the language via Zoom calls for a while? But it feels like it's so much part of this project for me as, as an American, speaking with other Americans who you and I both have this shared passion that, of course, sprung up in different ways as you studied the music and I studied the poetry and the literature. But that I do feel like probably my own quest is to get back to being like, when we have this conversation in another couple of years, I want to be able to offer what those three musics are and say, oh, right, well, I know the one for sorrow would have brone in it because that's the word for sorrow and be developing my own Irish and not just as, oh, hey, it'd be great to finally be an American that learns a language and I should go back to that thing I was studying when I was in college, but also to that sense of there's a way in which the Irish language seems to want to reemerge and be discovered again for the first time and put back into our mouths, even though because of time and distance, we grew up with a different language and, you know, on our tongues. And that coming back to, you know, and Chengabo means the living language and that we are doing that work by trying and failing miserably, perhaps to say the Irish words. I admit I'm struggling when I'm trying to do it in front of other people. It's fine when I'm alone in my office taking a class. 
But it's also the language has a chance to reemerge when we are with the music and with the stories, even when we're still using this intermediary tongue of English that we are able to speak with a great deal more adeptness. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and that's why that poem that I had mentioned to you earlier called Filarish, meaning Return Again by uh, Shona Reardon. And it's all about coming back to the land, coming back to the language. That's your native tongue. Like, don't turn your back on, you wouldn't turn your back on your family. So come back again. And yes, English can describe things just fine, but Irish is, it grew out of the land. So it, it has the, you know, the, the mountains, the, the, the shlieb, is that how you say mountain? Shlieb. Yeah, the shlieb in, it, in its being. Yes. So returning yes. to the mountains, to the sea, to the, but in the Irish tongue, mm-hmm. where it, to the land that it was, the language was born from is so important. I will absolutely include that in the show notes. Yeah. I mean, Shauna Reed is good for everybody. Little little extra of that in your day. Yeah, sweet. exactly. Good for the soul. Good for the soul. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. in your um, story, you're talking about the birds chattering, you know, mm. and they have their own language. And we have, you know, in ethnomusicology, with study of world music, there are many cultures around the world that get their songs, like the early songs or ideas of rhythms from nature, from like the woodpecker against a tree or from a bird song. And it was really the instruments that come from the land. Some believe that the harp could have come out of like a a bow and arrow kind of a, Hmm. and that's why the early harps were played on the left shoulder instead of the right shoulder. Hmm. And someone was like plucking their, the, the bow and we're like, Oh, that sounds nice. And you know, So I don't know, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert in the early Irish harp, but Karen Loomis is amazing. And Heyman, because I'm by far not an expert. I know, I I know enough to know that I don't know a lot. (laughs) So, you know, I know that there's so much more to learn and know. Sandra Joyce at the University of Limerick, she's the head of the music program there, has put together two books on the harp that are a wealth of knowledge that mm. that if anyone really wants to dive deep into the history of the harp, that's really a good place to start. That feels like kind of an ideal place for us to start to land our conversation in that part of the telling of this story for me is let's make sure that we imagine as big as we can and stay passionate and interested. And let's also remember that we do have sources and scholarship and original wisdom, original knowledge that people have spent their lives doing this work. And that whether or not you have master's degrees in this sort of stuff as you and I do to have that sort of that respect that we know what we don't know, that it's important in terms of our quest not to get into cultural appropriation, not getting into just adding everything to the modern soup and losing what's real and what we know for sure, because that's what makes these traditions continue to be so alive, is not that we've just taken them as flights of fancies and and decided to make it all up as we go along and say, oh, I like this story best. Let me pass it off. It's instead coming back to saying, what do we know for sure? How can we honor what 
has been written down and preserved across the centuries and the years? What did the foremothers and forefathers and ancestors truly experience to the best of our knowledge rather than a romantic notion that gives us an idea of wouldn't that be a lovely way mm. to imagine it? But it is a growing, it is a living tradition. Martin Hayes yes. is quoted as saying, the best of the tradition is yet to be. So how can people find you and your work? I know you're a woman of many passions and talents. <laughs> can be found in many places. You can find me on my website, which is moonoverthetrees.com. And that's my uh, music and theater company that I created a couple of years ago. And my timing was just so wonderful that I, I found it in 2020. It was... <laughs> I'm still here. So <laughs> yeah. So, so from there you can kind of launch into my interviews and the podcasts and things that I interview harpists from around the world and other musicians. And I'm starting up a theater podcast. Oh, I, I do play um, harp and I teach harp and piano. And I also help out at a harp festival that happens every July in New Jersey. We will be in person again this year, which is amazing. Yeah. It's a Somerset folk harp festival. It's one of the largest ones in North America. We all have Scottish and Irish and South American harpists and all kinds of any kind of harp you could possibly think of. Yeah, but moonoverthetrees.com is my, you know. And that name was based on a conversation I had with Michal Sullivan about the University of Limerick being on the Shannon. And he was talking about the Druids and, and how they would share stories and how mm. the sky was their roof and the forest floor was their, you know, their floor and the trees were their wall. And I just love the idea of getting people together to mm. communicate whether it, like I love the image of people around a campfire sharing stories and kind of being unplugged from things and really yeah. being present for each other. So I think we need more of that. And what you're doing with your podcast is, is really helping People find those stories again, which is wonderful. And finding that magic is mm. so important for inspiration. So thank you for what you're doing. Oh, yes. Oh, well, thank you so much, Maureen. I so appreciate you being here and sharing all of your brilliance and your magic. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, Everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, and how to work with me as a writing coach and story healer, as well as my online writing community and courses at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at NotWorkPodcast and join our listeners group over on Facebook. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional Irish reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, Ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.